Welcome to Parallel Barking. Happy October. This is your host, Ariana Backer, with another host. Larry Backer. Woof, woof. Mark Park. Happy Oktoberfest. Happy October. We are talking today about Putin's escapades, claiming Ukrainian regions for his own. What a surprise. He didn't claim Ukrainian regions for his own. Of course he, he did. He annexed four regions in Eastern annex, He did not annex them. This is a carefully performed theater piece. Oh, okay. The referendum. Okay. Before the, the embrace of people who signed pieces of paper that indicated their All right. Will to I, I, no, no, no. Let, let me explain what I mean, everybody else sees opera, this as right if now. You're, if you're going to talk opera, then you have to be operatic. And this was opera. Yes, it absolutely was. But what Putin is calling it is annexing the four regions, okay? And um, everybody else is calling it an illegal land grab. Yeah, blah, blah. The regions, of course, he's going to say that he's going to defend it. I mean, I don't see how this is any different than what he's already been doing. Well, there's a reason for this. Please do tell us. I mean, the the whole problem for Mr. Putin has been his ability to do a semi-credible job, at least at the beginning, and now a horrible job of, uh, of projecting force onto territory. What he's done, what he's had a miserable time with, is controlling the narrative of the invasion. Even the use of my term suggests his utter defeat in this uh, fourth, fifth, or sixth generation, depending on where you classify this, uh, fourth, fifth, or gener uh, sixth generation warfare tactic, which is control of the narrative. Which, by the way, uh, there's been a, a recent um, distribution, semi-distribution from the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff um, I think it's, uh, well, I forget the, the number, but on the critical importance of narrative control in warfare. It's, it's a critical area of, of strategic consideration now, whether the Americans can do a better job than the Russians. It's always been. I mean, not remains, now. No, it's, it's bigger in the sense that it's being rationalized and weaponized in ways that it hadn't been before. People have been thinking about it more. Um, but anyway... So he's done a, a terrible job with that. The fact that we continue to call it an invasion and, and all of these things. Uh, the, the other problem is, of course, that as long as he is viewed as projecting power outside of Russia, that is not fighting a defensive war against evil invaders, he is stuck at least discursively behind the eight ball, since one of the things that has really been, again, this is narrative and meaning-making control, has been um, now absorbed by most of the world's population is that defensive wars are good and non-defensive wars are at best suspicious and at worst really bad. But how is this defense? Annexation well, is not defense. Exactly, yes it is. If you annex these regions, then whose country is it? Russia. I'm not talking about whether it's legal or not, whether anyone's going to recognize it, but his this is his thinking. So if he annexes all of these places, when the Ukrainian forces go in there, then he can say, at least in his own mind, that it is the Ukrainians who are invading Russian uh, territory. So he's going to flip the narrative. And on that basis, he can use all kinds of power 
to I mean, really all you're doing evil. is explaining the rationale of a crazy person. Uh, well, that's the cards that we've been handed on the global stage, whether you call them crazy, narcissistic, idiotic, brilliant, is irrelevant. What is relevant is that by flipping this, at least in his own mind, he now believes that he has an excuse to use, for example, things like technical nuclear weapons. Because but what I think they're, is going to be used, they're going to be used in the defense of the motherland. What now, I think no is one on earth is going to believe them except maybe 50 million Russians, but there you go. And I know there's more than 50 million Russians. That's my point. So well, what, what I think is funny is that although everybody, most people, most know that this is completely illegal and ridiculous and a farce that in the West will go through the motions and um, have another vote and say to say this is definitely well, illegal. We are. Well, going no, he's, he's really look. He's really smart. The the West has backed itself into a corner, one that the Chinese have been exploiting uh, as they begin to develop really robust theories of endogenous democracy. Yeah. And that the West has conflated, uh, not the West. I mean, this is reductionist, essentializing. Yeah, exactly. Um, You're being a little. Well, no, no, no. And 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 I complain about it bitterly when, when it's used this way. Uh, those who tend to control the official means for expressing definitive views in a representative capacity for the billions of people who make up the Anglo-European and developing state West. The news, the people who control the newspapers, the people who are in high positions in the governmental apparatus, you know, the usual suspects. Right. right? All of those people yes. who are, who, you know, who pass for our representative leaders and therefore have been delegated the responsibility to or the authority to speak for us. All of them have invested in this bizarrely two-dimensional way in the theatrics of elections. We love them. We we based everything on it. Think about the January 6th committee and Mr. Trump's anti-January uh, 6th agitprop uh, stuff all around elections. And so the entirety of, of the, the, the way in which we view legitimacy uh, as, a, as an expression of popular will, we don't really care what happens after this, this eruption, this eruptive moment in the form of, of an election, um, that that is the definitive means for legitimating something. And it's been for a long time uh, uh, Soviet, certainly Soviet uh, regimes, Soviet Marxist-Leninist regimes have been using the form of elections as a way of covering whatever it is that they were doing that had been decided irrespective of elections, saying, well, you know, you Western people, all you think about are elections. Well, you want elections, here's the election. And then we have these huge battles over, well, when we said elections, we mean elections that are real elections. And here's this laundry list of things that make for a real election. And here's this laundry list of things that don't. But the minute you do that, you get sucked in. Well, right? and, you and, say you uh, could, I mean, you could say that for any tool that, that. Well, but that's but that's the point. We don't believe this is a tool. We believe this is a sacred expression of the divine will of the masses expressed through a mechanism that itself uh, like the magisterium in a Roman Catholic church uh, infused with the Holy Spirit and therefore acquiring some kind of sacral uh, mm. quality, which is nice. And it's very useful for maintaining stability 
uh, and prosperity, blah, blah, blah. And it accords with uh, a lot and it resonates a lot with some core uh, notions that are central to um, our civilization, certainly from the Roman period uh, of which we are the heirs, right? But that's putting that aside. So what he does is he's exploiting this um, to make this case for his own purposes because he wants to now to turn what is an aggressive war into a defensive war and therefore gives him permission to use all kinds of nasty things uh, and and continue to commit what the Ukrainians and everyone else calls war crimes. He would call, no, this is exuberance in the defense of the motherland, right? But by doing this, he's muddied. He, what he's attempting to do is muddy the waters right. and muddy the picture. Not, of course, He's not muddying any anything with respect to well-read elites in Berlin or Washington or even Seattle, but where he's looking to muddy the waters is precisely where he needs to muddy the waters. And that is all of those places through which he can move his goods, services, and people and avoid Western sanctions. So he doesn't give a damn whether the Americans buy this or the European Union buys this, he cares that this is enough of a cover so that he can find a number of states that are willing to turn a blind eye or willing to take a little bit of money or willing on principle to now um, view him and his cause favorably enough so that they will disregard American, uh, European, Japanese sanctions. And that's the point, so it's actually very clever. Um, everyone believes, because the West is very narcissistic, that Putin is talking to them, or Putin is talking to the Ukrainians. And what they forget is that he's not talking to them at all. He knows, I mean, he's playing them, certainly. Uh, and the Western press is, is probably one of the easiest things on earth to play, uh, certainly in the way in which uh, their owners allow them to, to operate. Um, but he's really playing countries that are not them, all of those countries that have yet to impose sanctions, all of those countries that either abstain or disappear during UN votes, all of those countries that express some doubts secretly or privately, that's what he's looking for. And to that extent, and it's not him, I mean, who knows where he is mentally uh, or whether it's an act. I mean, this is well above my pay grade, but even putting him out of the equation, if I'm looking to uh, for this thing to survive, uh, at least to, to to produce some kind of credible end of this thing that doesn't uh, that doesn't send the the Russian uh, system down the toilet, then I need to do things like this. He'd already begun doing this, for example, with the lifeline that was thrown to him by the um, Iranians and the Indians, uh, that little Silk Road down. Uh, that made the the uh, American and um, and European sanctions less effective, and of course the Chinese. But the Chinese is is his deal with the Chinese is dealing with the devil. The Chinese are dealing from a position of strength, and it's making him quite uncomfortable. He still remembers his history lessons. That's uh, in which for fifty years, the Russians, that is in the form of the Soviets. Uh, were dominating the, their Chinese communist brothers, putting aside the racism inherent in that, although the Chinese won't. Um, you know, he, he finds himself in the uncomfortable position of the student now becoming the master, and he hates that, so he's looking for some other way out, and his way out is south. I feel uh, like that, that colors the entire 
reason he is invading Ukraine, he's tired of being the student and wants to be the master of all. No, no, that's the, the invasion was uh, a, a bunch of, it's it's very different. It's, it's a very different pathology. Uh, and it's a pathology born of an extraordinary corruption uh, and and projection of a particular view of history, historical imperatives, um, historical honor. And again, this is very essentializing and reductionist, but it's not my essentialization or reductionism. It's theirs, which then requires the reflowering of a, of a Russian empire going back to the lands that the Russians, you know, if some Russian went to the bathroom in the Caucasus, then that must be Russian imperial territory and therefore is Russian forever. The, um, the, the thing that makes that appealing, of course, is that there are a number of countries with territorial claims grounded in empires that are long gone, um, that to, even though they're very quiet about this, that would not cry very much if the Russians were able to succeed because then it would, by the by military victory, would then uh, substantially, in their eyes at least, would substantially up the legitimacy of their own claims that if some uh, dynasty a thousand years ago sent a caravan and said, oh my God, this is mine, then it is theirs eternally. Right. So there's all kinds of things that are going on in this thing, besides the farce of the referendum, besides the absolutely lunatic, uh, at least from the Western perspective, annexation speech. Uh, and despite the very clever uh, narrative controlling response that uh, President Zelensky uh, put out in two speeches, one on September 30th and one on October 1st, uh, one of them mocking the referendum and the other one suggesting, well, you know, be careful what you wish for Russia. We've now accelerated our um, our um, application for NATO. But that's a different story and one that, that actually makes me quite uh, annoyed, but we'll get there. Why are you annoyed about their application into NATO? Uh, because, um, How can I put this in a politic way? I guess there's no putting it in a politic yeah, way. Yeah, you already broke um, the deal. No, yeah. Here, and it starts with with um, everyone's favorite demon uh, overlord in the United States, Mr. Trump, right? Who's, who's now being transformed into some demon creature, uh, nothing of which can be viewed positively. I mean, he's, he's been- Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, the process, the process is not done. It'll be done. Uh, after an indictment, a humiliating trial, and perhaps who knows what. Uh, but, the, you know, the thing is going forward, and, and we'll see how that plays out. I've got nothing to say about that. Uh, mm -hmm. That's bizarrely, um, it's bizarrely over-the-top politics that has its own um, concerns, but not in this context. All right, so getting back to, to him, Mr. Trump, in a lot of ways, <clears throat> was like, you know, in the, the fantasy novels that you read, there's always, especially if it's like this faux medieval thing, uh, there's always, or this magic thing, there's always this absolutely crazy uh, person who is, you know, half uh, impossible to understand, but who has a gift for being quite prophetic or oracular from time to time. And then everyone sits and tries to interpret the oracular pronouncement that comes out of a person that three quarters of the time uh, appears to be a, a poster child for the evils of untreated Tourette syndrome. 
Um, and, and to some extent, Mr. Trump served that purpose. There were a number of things, which is why uh, a substantially and surprisingly uh, number of policies from the Trump administration continue to be carried over in the Biden administration. Uh, but again, that's a different podcast. So he's got this oracular thing, but he just can't, you know, and then he goes back to him uh, in ways that, um, that, you know, either people love it or hate it. So what it does or, this have to do with Zelensky and NATO? Let me get, let me get there. But I needed to, to, because we live in very sensitive times, I need to, um, to, to, to kind of lay a, a little bit of a groundwork. So even if you take that position of Mr. Trump, that is that whether or not you believe he's a demon overlord, uh, there were some things that he was saying, either because he knew or, or despite himself, uh, that actually were quite prophetic or oracular. And one of the things uh, that fall into that category is his sense about NATO. Bureaucratized, a group of toddlers in uniform playing soldier um, in houses uh, whose toys are becoming more derelict by the minute, um, thinking in real life that their purpose was really over with the fall of the Soviet Union and allowing themselves not only to be bureaucratized, uh, but to decay. Uh, and to be very, very, very 20th century in the way in which they view their mission, in the way in which they view their operations. It's basically a bunch of aristocratic lordlings at the, the middle of the 18th century pretending that they're real soldiers. Um, and that's the problem. And so when Zelensky says, well, you know, thank you, Russia, you really now pushed us into Europe. The next thing you hear is a bunch of I don't want to stay up there behinds because that's that's impolitic and bad. And so I won't say that. But a bunch of um, leaders and influencers almost immediately said, well, this isn't going to happen. Uh, we continue to have all of these concerns about Ukraine and NATO and blah, blah, blah. And, and they continue to regurgitate arguments, and I mean regurgitate in the worst possible way, arguments that were made in the 20th century without any sense of how things have changed uh, now. And so what winds up happening is that in a sense, these people uh, wind up doing Putin's work for him uh, in, in a context in which the annexation that makes it easier for him to continue doing what he's doing without any additional support. And ultimately, this gets back, and the last thing I'm going to say about this, this gets back to my sense about the original position of the West, which I believe is still the position among those who are now keeping their mouth shut, but who tend to run things on our behalf, not with my consent, and certainly not with my vote, uh, but who still do it in ways that are uh, that they believe is because their minds are very strange things, uh, as close to God given as you can get. And that was my wind up to where it is they're going. And that is that they would like to see at the end of the day, a partitioning of Ukraine and that Putin has effectively given them exactly what they wanted. They now have the basis for a deal. Uh, and they believe that what they can do is pretend to uh, invite Zelensky into the EU, into Europe, into the EU and NATO, 
Putin has done this, and now they're going to go and begin to uh, coerce Mr. Zelensky to pretend that he's a Polish king in the 18th century, and it's time for the first partition, or actually the second partition of Ukraine. The first occurred with Crimea in 2014, and that disgusts me. Um, it's uh, in in any number of ways uh, that we don't have time for in this podcast, but in a sense. What you wind up seeing here, and this is not reported anywhere in the press, what you wind up seeing here, I think, is a kind of parallel motion where certain people who uh, who claim leadership, uh, and they may have it formally, but uh, in my, my sense of it is, <laughs> that's all I have, uh, align their interests and hopes because they don't want to be cold, they don't want to make a sacrifice, and they believe that leadership is costless. Um, of, and certainly leadership of the world, uh, that their interests now appear to align with the quote-unquote narrative facts that Mr. Putin is making, even with this sham theater of an annexation. And that is horrifying. And Mr. Zelensky, who sees this as well, I believe, is poking the tiger and saying, well, I'm going to call you on this. And so all kinds of things are bound up in what appears to be a fairly simple and stupid thing, Mr. Putin's operatic, farcical uh, annexation. But all kinds of things are really bound up in it, and some of it fairly sophisticated. To me, it just seems like an interruption. I wish you were right. Only, I mean, we're going to find out one way or another, right? Because this thing is going to play out. Well, uh, I mean, it's just... <laughs> He, I mean, he's still in Ukraine. He, Russia's still in Ukraine. They're still in the middle of a war. I don't know. They are and and are. And we are continuing to supply the Ukrainians with a tremendous amount of arms. Yes. Um, Besides controlling the narrative, I, I, I understand. Don't the put it down. Don't put that down. I mean, for me, this is this is a critical part. You can win a land war and lose everything if you don't control narrative. Yeah, I mean, you know, but I but I get your point because what you see is if you focus just on this, then this becomes more evidence of the of the crazy circus, um, an asylum in that that purports to be the leadership of the Kremlin. On the other hand, it's a very effective asylum because they keep they don't seem to they seem to have a very uh, significant knack for not for holding on to power. And so maybe it's less of an asylum than we think. And our problem is that we're not really seeing them uh, within with the lenses that we need to understand the way they're they're embedded within their society. Um, but yeah, from our perspective, this is just nonsensical and stupid. But I'm suggesting that um, beyond the the obvious, which is at least as far as the Anglo-European West is concerned, this is a non-starter. And in fact, it's pathetic. Uh, beyond that, there are other kinds of things that may be in play as well. And one of them is a Western thing, uh, which is Mr. Putin is now providing uh, more of an ex more of the, the the kind of context that may make it possible for those of our leaders in our part of the world uh, to then um, strong arm the Ukrainians. Uh, and who knows, they'll, they'll into make a negotiation. Yeah, well, not into negotiation, but into partition. That's the thing. 
negotiation is a euphemism. Let's be very, very clear. You're right. You are you. So you're saying that everybody in the world, except for Ukraine, wants the Ukraine partitioned. No, I think that there are a significant number of leaders in the Anglo-European world who quietly, because they can't do it anymore, because a lot of they know that they, that's the way of losing elections for the moment. But we'll see what happens after a cold. They just winter. wanted partitions. They they they're looking for a way to do this because they believe that that's a magic ticket to make this thing go away. And since we don't value Ukrainians as much as we value voters who are uh, waiting to vote us in or out in the next election, right, right. then we can, as we sacrificed the polls 200 years ago, right. um, we will sacrifice them. Um, after all, it wasn't but 15, 20 years ago, we didn't like them very much, at least according to our uh, the apparatus of our press organs, uh, and who knows where that was coming from, um, uh, that we can sacrifice them and partition is cool. And that is something that the leaders who who are moving us in that direction, they've gone underground to, to some extent, that really needs to be exposed and discussed, at least in the liberal democratic West, where those sorts of views ought to be tested within the crucible of democratic debate, open and transparent democratic debate, because that is, in fact, our system and what uh, no, that's never gonna happen. Then, then we've got another problem. Right. And it's a deeper one. And that problem is uh, what we do with this incrustation of, quote unquote, leaders who now appear to impede the effective uh, and appropriate operation of a liberal democratic state. Well, and I think that's it, a podcast it's, for another day. It's, it's about what you were saying before. The worship of voting, the worship of getting into office of being of that it's, it's a performance yeah it's just a performance of elections right because once once you vote then the voter has you you've used them up and they cease to be a factor in the operation of the state mm -hmm. right that's that's the nature of elections so you court them you do all kinds of things and then once you have their vote well you've used them up the way you use up labor. Yeah this is the new uh, aristocracy. And then and then off you go and then who gets to who gets to involve themselves intimately in the operation of the state? Those with the money and influence, staying power and interest to make it their, worth their while to constantly seek to try it, to gain entry into the administrative and elective apparatus of the state in order to influence them. You and I, who have to work for a living, would find that uh, difficult because then we'd have to choose between uh, doing that full time or feeding ourselves. Uh, and that becomes impossible. And it becomes, to some extent, an industry, and it becomes a, an interest-affected uh, thing, with respect to which there's been an extraordinary and actually quite good and sophisticated academic writing, uh, certainly for the last 70 or 80 years. And this is all well-known terrain. But what we tend not to do is put the two pieces together, the the consumption of voting on the one hand, and then the disposability of voters on the one hand, and then the um, the way in which actual uh, um, consultative democratic activity within the apparatus is really limited to an elite group of people who can afford it.
Uh, but that's a different, again, a different podcast. Uh, for me, that's important here because those people then have the, the, the maneuvering room to do what they've been telling us they've been wanting to do since February, which is to make this all go away uh, by, giving the, by giving the Russians a little bit of territory and then they think this is done. Um, and and we've, you know, we know how that goes. We have examples for the last 300 years. Well, yeah, I mean, how, so what about the annexation in, of Crimea? Like what? You mean the so-called annexation of Crimea? <laughs> The so-called yes. annexation of yes, Crimea. Yes, yes. I mean, Russia's uh, efforts in eastern Ukraine, a bunch of a series of improvisations in response to you know frictions and political warfare. Yeah, and I think they did something similar in in Ukraine. The, Ukraine is even worse at, from my perspective, uh, and there the blame falls solely on the Obama administration. They set a very bad precedent, uh, and now we are reaping the whirlwind here. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that administration did a lot of good and some interesting things. This is not the high point of the administration, uh, allowing that line to get crossed. You know, yeah, I'm again, glad you said that, that setting uh, a precedent. This is like, I feel like this is going to happen like every 10, is, right, 20 years. Right, right, which is why I said that was the first partition of Ukraine with the um, with the nodding approval. So what what did the Russians see? What they saw with the Obama administration saying, naughty, naughty Russia, here's some sanctions. And uh, you know, from the and from the Russian perspective, this is oh, okay, so I'm paying a civil penalty for annexing Crimea. So basically the aggregate present value of the lifetime uh cost to me of these civil penalties is what the West believes is the value of of Crimea. And yeah. that is the selling price that the West has given, has, has set for Crimea. Cool. Now we'll do the same thing for other parts. Yeah, of... cost-benefit analysis. It's I not think... cost-benefit analysis. It's markets for territory. <laughs> this is cost-benefit analysis. This is, this is what a, a prostitute does when she figures out how much money she's, she or he is earning uh, versus the amount of fines they have to pay when they're brought in uh, by cops uh, who are not corruptible. And they say, well, you know, if it's a $1,000 fine, but I'm bringing in $8,000 a week. Well, that's the cost of doing business. That's also a cost-benefit analysis. And and now I understand the price, right? I understand the price. And and so, um, yeah. So yeah, the 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 Ukrainian uh, annexation is extraordinary theater. Um, but, you know, again, the problem with theater is that it tends to be distracting. It takes our minds off of other things. And sometimes theater has a moral and a purpose in this case, the very, <laughs> the very clumsiness of the theater, which was, I mean, they they knew it wasn't even worth taking the time and effort to stage this right, uh, made it clear that that wasn't the point. The point was something else. Um, still, it also shows that the Russians don't value narrative uh, as much as others, and it also shows how that is going to cost them in the end because it really isn't clear that the partition people, you know, uh, you know, most famously Henry Kissinger for a while until uh, his better angels or someone went and prevailed on him to maybe tone that down. We're all about yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's bargain some land for peace. Um, 
Um, but, you know, it, it's still the jury's out. It may be that other factions uh, that also have significant influence in us in enough of the uh, liberal democratic states may make the partitioners uh, unable to do what they want. But what it does do at a minimum is, you know, if, if Putin can't get anything else, as long as he keeps the West divided, both internally within states and between the allies, he's bought something. Yeah. And, and this theater of annexation is meant to do just that. Plus, of course, uh, what he's just done, uh, again, talking about elections as a reward to the Italians for electing a, uh, a so-called right wing government. He cut off their, um, I think, it's their gas supply. He did this yesterday or the day before. So, you know. <laughs> There We're going to talk about that in our next podcast. It was the yeah, Nord uh, Streamlines. Yeah. So well, I, actually, hold up. We don't no. know who did that. No, no, no. That's that we're you're teasing our our audience here. We're going to get to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, what else? What's your other sense with respect to this this whole drama? I'm I'm done. Last words. Well. I'm just <sighs> you're throwing up your hands and going, "Good God!" <laughs> it's it's just yeah, yeah, we all are. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said before, it it kind of feels like not not that we I knew this was going to happen, but it felt like this was something that was definitely very possible after Crimea and yeah. Um, yeah. and I feel like I'm watching a free performance of French absurdist theater from the post-war and period. it never seems like I mean it's it's anything it is, that happens in that UN General Assembly or the NATO um, referendums or anything like that is ever going to do anything. It's just for show. You're right. And it's it's incredibly annoying. Like, I don't want to see that. I don't care about well, what But you... on the other hand, you should be grateful. This is this is classic French uh, high intellectual farce and they didn't charge you an admission fee. You're oh, right. Yes, they did. We get to the talk inflation rate, the inflation rate is not... Yeah, what are you room. talking about? <laughs> <laughs> we're paying a lot for this theater we're paying a lot for this for the amusement of our um of our i can't say that they're demon or alien demon overlords uh our overlords who continue to appear to take human form you know how much i'm paying for are. gas oh no that's yet Almost another six dollars all right woof woof bark bark thanks everybody we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>